Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. What is up? Welcome to the Los Angeles Dodgers podcast on the Believe Network. I'm J.P. Hornstra with the Southern California News Group. Happy off day. I'm recording this episode on a Monday. So what do you do when there's no Dodger game to watch? Looks like Sportsnet LA is replaying Sunday's game in case you want to relive that. Looking back at the last week, let's start with the good. Uh, The Dodgers' stretch of 31 games in 30 days is over. They went 19-12. and Didn't lose much ground in the standings. Two games up on San Diego, five and a half up on San Francisco. And they just got done playing the best team they'll face maybe all regular season. Split the series against the Mets. Saturday, Walker Buehler got lit up a bit. We can talk about him. Sunday's game was a close one. We can talk about that one, too. Winnable game. The Mets were one reliever short, it seemed like. And if you're talking about the bullpens, I think you could argue that Buck Showalter made the right moves. He used his closer, Edwin Diaz, in the eighth inning of a 4-2 game. To get out Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, and Trey Turner. Not easy to do, but Diaz did it. And then Seth Lugo came on in the ninth inning. Either Diaz wasn't good for two innings on the Sunday night, or Showalter liked the matchups. I don't know. Either way, Lugo serves up a home run to Will Smith. Two outs. Dodgers are down to their final strike. Chris Taylor doubles. Great at that. Lugo's still pitching at this point. He serves up a first pitch fastball to Eddie Alvarez. Eddie Alvarez is playing his first game in the starting lineup all season. And he tied the game with one swing. Single. Now it's tied. Four to four. And I bring up the Mets bullpen usage to point out that Dave Roberts kind of did the opposite thing. He brought in his closer, Craig Kimbrell, in the ninth inning, not in a safe situation, then kept Kimbrell out for the tenth. Kimbrell gives up a hit to the first batter he faced in the tenth inning, which is usually harmless, but not in extra innings. Because there's a zombie runner on second base. This time, that cost Craig Kimbrell. The Mets scored a run. Love those unearned runs leading to losses. Thank you, Rob Manfred. Mets win 5-4. to four. Let's talk about the bullpen some more because this was kind of a running theme all weekend, this series against the Mets. Craig Kimbrell hadn't pitched in three days. He was going to pitch Sunday's game no matter what. I don't think putting him in the game in the ninth inning 
and keeping him out for the 10th was necessarily the wrong move. Call me crazy? I'm okay with that. I think the wrong move was made on Friday, two days earlier. You remember that game, right? Tyler Anderson was cruising, six scoreless innings, 81 pitches. Tyler Anderson has pitched 26 consecutive scoreless innings now, but he was out by the seventh inning. We asked Roberts after the game, why did you pull Tyler Anderson? Dave said in so many words, you know, there was nothing wrong with him. He could have gone another inning, but I just felt good about where the bullpen was. And the problem with that logic is that his margin for error was pretty big that night, relatively speaking. You can imagine, though, in a four-game series against a good team, that that margin of error is not always going to be so large. And it did shrink. Because if the Dodgers only needed Daniel Hudson for an inning or less in Friday night's game, Daniel Hudson might have been available on Sunday, but he wasn't. Hudson got four outs on Friday. So the eighth inning on Sunday went to Bruce Dargraderall instead. Gratterall has been struggling. He gave up three runs on Saturday in a game the Dodgers weren't going to win. He gave up three more runs on Sunday in a game the Dodgers could have won. Gratterall comes in. A 2-1 lead becomes a 4-2 deficit. And that home run by Will Smith and that RBI single by Eddie Alvarez in the ninth inning, all that did was tie the game. Send it into extra innings where the Dodgers lost for the fourth time in four tries. Sticking on the bullpen for a minute, you know, Saturday's game was the one everybody was talking about. Where Dave Roberts tried to put Zach McKinstry on the mound with a four-run lead. That backfired. Can't do that. But that didn't affect the outcome of the game or even the series. It just gave us a really good Josh Bardgett. And it reminded every manager and umpire out there exactly what the rule is about position players taking the mound. Can't do it with the four-run lead. But Friday's move to the pen, that one stung. We just didn't know it until a couple days later. Anybody out there go to Friday's game? Pride night. It's a sellout. At least that's what we were told in the press box. I walked around the concourse a little bit. Looked like a diverse crowd having a good time. I even saw Glenn Burke jersey on the back of one fan. Posted that to Instagram. That was a first. But I want to spend a few minutes talking about Glenn Burke because his story is just so fascinating. The first known openly gay player in major pro sports And he was in the Dodgers system from 1972 to 1978, last three in the majors. Well, the Dodgers invited the family of Glenn Burke to Pride Night on Friday. His brother threw out the first pitch. Mookie Betts caught it. His sisters were out on the field, too. I heard Todd Lights, the PA announcer, read a summary of Burke's career, including how he invented the high-five with Dusty Baker in 1977. It was a nice tribute. And it was the first extensive tribute for Burke of any kind that I can remember at Dodger Stadium. And Lights acknowledged this. said specifically that it was an overdue recognition 
of all that he accomplished. But we can't talk about this without noting the element of hypocrisy here. Did you catch this? It's the part of the story that the Dodgers left out. Now, did you ever step back and think about why Pride Night exists? I'm going to quote here from a Twitter thread written by John Folkt. He is a director in the Dodgers R&D department, and he happens to be a gay man. He has a level of expertise on this that I don't. So I'm going to quote from John's Twitter thread. I'll link to it on the show page. He writes, quote, Sports in general have spent such a long time implicitly telling certain people that they weren't wanted that we now need to actively reverse that. We have to actively welcome communities in. So if you're wondering why Pride Night exists, that's it. I couldn't have said it any better. All but one major league team, looking at you, the Texas Rangers, have something along the lines of a Pride Night. And if you're wondering why there is a Heritage Night for different groups at Dodger Stadium and other stadiums, recognizing ethnic minorities, that's why. It's to tell people in those groups who have been marginalized historically that they're welcome. Glenn Burke was out. He either told his teammates that he was gay or he didn't hide the fact. And to the extent that his teammates were bothered by this, they did a pretty good job of hiding it. Because by all accounts, he was very well liked by his teammates. And then, all of a sudden, in May 1978, the Dodgers traded Burke to the Oakland A's. According to Burke's autobiography, Tommy Lasorda, the manager, did not like Glenn Burke because he was getting too close to his son, Tommy Jr., who was also gay. Burke claimed that the Dodgers general manager, Al Campanis, offered him $5,000 to participate in what was effectively a sham honeymoon, following ostensibly his marriage to a woman. Now, for the players, it didn't seem to matter what Burke did off the field because he was fun to have in the clubhouse. He was helping them win games. He did his job once he got to the ballpark. But for the older men in positions of power behind the scenes of the Dodgers at the time, that wasn't the case. So let's go back to that Twitter quote from John Falk, the Dodgers director of baseball systems platforms. Sports in general have spent such a long time implicitly telling people that they weren't wanted. Now, the Dodgers are very quick to remind anyone and everyone that they signed Jackie Robinson and promoted him to the major leagues in 1947, breaking the color barrier. But before that, they were just like any other AL or NL team, telling black players that they weren't wanted. Then Branch Rickey opened the door. Robinson ran through it, and the rest is history. Glenn Burke? He could have been a similar pioneer figure. He was right there in the Dodgers clubhouse for three years. All Tommy Lasorda or Al Campanis had to do was come out and say, hey, we accept Glenn Burke. His life away from the field is his business. All we care is that he helps us win baseball games once he shows up here. That little statement. It says the bare minimum 
could have sent a message to Glenn Burke, God knows how many gay baseball players in the future. That little statement could have broken a barrier that made Pride Night unnecessary, if not by 22, maybe earlier, maybe later, who knows. It was at best a missed opportunity. And at worst, it reinforced a message of bigotry, not by what was said, but by what was unsaid. Now, Billy Martin, the manager of the A's at the time, he was a bigot. He saw to it that Burke got sent to the minor leagues and never came back. And maybe Al Campanis knew that that was exactly the fate that awaited Burke in Oakland. Maybe not. Either way, for the Dodgers in 2022 to trot out the family of Glenn Burke and say this recognition was overdue, well, that only tells half the story. The Dodgers could have allowed Burke to break a barrier while he was on their roster in a public way that allowed other gay players to play openly, just as the Dodgers allowed Jackie Robinson to break the color barrier for other black players. But they chose not to. And if we're going to reflect on the Glenn Burke story 44 years later, let's reflect on that part of it too. That's all I have to say about it. But there's a lot more you can read about Glenn Burke. Andrew Marinus wrote a biography called Singled Out. Google that. Go find it at your local bookstore or one of those websites that sells books. And if you'd rather spend an afternoon and not a few days reading Burke's story, check out the New York Times. Scott Miller wrote a lovely piece on Friday about the recognition at Dodger Stadium for Glenn Burke on Pride Night on Friday. Delved into the history a little bit. It's a great story. A couple more notes from this week. We have reached the one-third mark of the season. 54 games. It's a good time to take stock of the numbers, which are, in my opinion, the backbone of baseball observation. Right now, the Dodgers are on pace to win 105 games. It's pretty good. Mookie Betts is on pace for 48 home runs. Pretty good. Career high, potentially, for Mookie in the midst of a season that started with a very dead baseball. What's interesting about that is that no other Dodger is on pace for even 20, unless you want to include Edwin Rios. He's hit seven. Technically, that puts him on pace for 21 home runs, but we know he's going to be out for the next few weeks, at least rehabbing what sounded like a pretty gnarly hamstring injury. That seems a little weird, doesn't it? Only one player in your lineup is finishing the season with 20 home runs or more, and he's your leadoff hitter, and he hits 48, and nobody else is over 20, that's kind of weird. Freddie Freeman, he's on pace for 60 doubles and 12 home runs. Now keep in mind, there have been only six 60-double seasons in history, and none since 1936. I'm comfortable rooting for this. I know there's no cheering in the press box, but Freddie Freeman, 60 doubles, let's make it happen. Trey Turner is on pace for 132 RBIs. That would be the most by any Dodger player since Tommy Davis set the franchise record in 1962 with 153. Davis batted with Maury Wills on base approximately 153% of the time, 
Now, Turner has Mookie, but Mookie keeps hitting those dang home runs and denying Turner his RBI. It's a shame. <laughs> Betts, conversely, is on pace to score 156 runs, which would be a franchise record, and by a comfortable margin. Uh, Babe Herman scored a nice round 130 runs in 1930, and you have to go down to Sean Green in 2001 and Cody Bellinger in 2019 to find anybody from the L.A. era who make the top 10 on this list of franchise records. I think I'm comfortable for rooting for Mookie to score 156. Looking on the pitching side, Tyler Anderson is on pace for 21 wins. He's the only pitcher in either league on pace for 20 at the moment. But that's not the most interesting thing about Tyler and Anderson's season. He is on pace for 18 walks, 159 strikeouts, in almost 168 innings. Do you know how many pitchers have had a season of 18 or fewer walks and 159 or more strikeouts? You want to take a guess? You can count them on one hand. Well, Clayton Kershaw did it in 2016, which, for my money, is his under-the-radar best season ever. Cliff Lee did it in 2010. And Phil Hughes did it in 2014. And that's it. Those three. As I look down on the rest of the pitching staff, it's hard for me to highlight any counting stats besides Tyler Anderson's. Mainly because of how the Dodgers are rationing out the innings. Very democratic. Uh, Tony Gonsolin is third in baseball with 101.59 ERA. That translates to a 261 ERA plus, which if you're not familiar with ERA plus. That just means Gonsolin's ERA is 161% better than league average. It's pretty good. That's uh, actually more than pretty good. That's an all-time great season if you can keep it up. Better than Bob Gibson in 1968, better than Doc Gooden in 1985, just to name a few. I doubt he can keep that up, but who knows? I also want to give out a shout out to Justin Farmer. And who is Justin Farmer, you might ask? Well, he's an outfielder in the San Diego Padres system. Justin Farmer was hitting 211 for the Lake Elsinore Storm going into Sunday's game against the Rancho Cucamonga Quakes. You know what Justin Farmer did in the first inning? Well, he hit a home run against Clayton Kershaw. That was the only run Clayton Kershaw gave up in his rehab start Sunday. Four innings, seven strikeouts, one run. Probably going to make his next start for the Dodgers on Sunday. That's what it sounds like. But for Justin Farmer, undrafted free agent out of Florida International, he took Clayton Kershaw deep. And that's something he can tell his kids about someday. Let's hope his kids believe him. Let's hope they're listening. From the Hard Luck Club, Kevin Pillar. Man. Kevin Pillar, blinking you missed it. His Dodgers career might be over. Kevin Pillar played four games this week. Veteran called up from AAA. In game number four, he finally gets his first hit. It's a double. 
Then Kevin Pillar slides into third base and fractures a bone in his shoulder. We found out on Sunday that Kevin Pillar is going to have surgery. And according to Dave Roberts, quote, for all intents and purposes, that's it. His season is over. Tough break for a guy from Southern California, born in West Hills. Had been looking forward to playing for the Dodgers for a long time. Four games into his Dodgers career, that's it. Man. Uh, maybe we'll see Kevin Pillar back next year. I don't know. Who knows? But it sounds like the next time you see him in the Dodger uniform, if at all, will be in 2023. I wanted to end this with something a little bit different. I wanted to bring a guest on. And I thought, who better to have on as my first guest than the next starting pitcher for the Dodgers, Mitch White. Mitch White is scheduled to start Tuesday against the Chicago White Sox. And he was gracious enough to spend a few minutes with me in the clubhouse just the other day, talking about his season so far, joining the rotation, going on COVID IL, coming back as a starter after starting the season in the bullpen, and who he misses in the bullpen. So without further ado, here's my interview with Mitch White. You go on the COVID IL, but then the Dodgers use that time to build you up as a starting pitcher, put you in the rotation. In hindsight, does that feel like a blessing at all? I mean, I try to look at it like that. I don't think um, I could have really guessed what would have happened. But now that we're here, it's like, all right, we'll take it and we'll run with it and keep going. Was there any talk of building you up as a starter in spring training? Um... Not specifically, but it was kind of like similar to last year where the role was very fluid. It was going to be more of that. So spot start here and there, depending on what we need, maybe one inning, maybe two, three innings, whatever. I'm guessing the fact that spring training was shorter than usual did not do you any favors in that regard? Well, yeah. I mean, I was built up um, to about four innings in spring, which obviously isn't quite full, but pretty close. And then early in the year, I was able to get a couple longer innings or longer outings. Um, But yeah, definitely the short spring training affects things. And when you look at where you're at now, is this kind of the opportunity that you had been hoping for maybe all along where you're taking the ball every fifth day, roughly? For sure. I mean, however it ends up happening, um, I generally prefer starting, but whatever gets me out on the field is the best, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. There was a rule enacted in the offseason, limiting the number of times teams could option players. Yes. Should I or should I not call that the Mitch White? <laughs> I mean, I've heard some talk of that, but to be fair, Lewis Head had me beat. I think he had 12. So, you know, you can call it whatever you want. But, but who's counting? Yeah, exactly. Real, realistically, how happy were you then that rule did go in place? I think it's cool. Oops. I, uh, I think, I don't know. There's going to be some scenarios where it may not help guys, but I think for the vast majority of times, um, it's a good thing for players, for sure, to, so they can't be manipulated up and down as much. So definitely very happy, yeah. I'm sure you, like most players, never want to be caught complaining about getting called up to the big leagues 10 times in a year. But realistically, that is a lot of back and forth and a lot of juggling. What's the most challenging aspect of all that? Sure, I mean... I think I got to the point where I was kind of just used to it and you just kind of roll with it. 
Um, definitely would have preferred to stay, but it's really, it's like anything else. You just go out and play wherever you're at. Is it placing a hold on your mail every time you leave? <laughs> it, yeah, I don't, car warm? I don't, what is it? <laughs> I mean, specifically, I guess the flights, but for the most part, they took care of me pretty well and, and gave me some time to um, either be on my own or like kind of take a little time off for every option or give me enough lead time on my flights and, and prepare me to start or throw or whatever it was. Okay, rapid fire. Who do you miss talking to in the bullpen the most? <laughs> well, Joe Kelly from last year, ah. for sure. I mean, it's <laughs> sad to see him go. He's keeps it lighthearted from what I hear. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Which Bay Area restaurant do you miss the most, not being back at home? Oh, there's this place um, right by school. Oh, shoot. It was like a Chipotle Panda Express combo, and we always used to get that after we work out. That was one of my favorites. Man of the people, keeping it casual. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I no fancy restaurants. Yeah, yeah. You've been around the league enough now. I think you're qualified to answer this. What's your favorite road city? San Francisco. But that's because that's home. So sure. that's kind of cheating. San Diego then, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Good answer. <laughs> Thank you, Mick. Yeah. Thank you to Mitch for coming on. That'll do it for this week's episode. Thank you for joining me. We'll do it again next week. So long. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.